Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, Canada's premier incubator. We'll talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, fundraising, and everything in between. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, tandemlaunch.com, to see what we're all about. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of the Launch Podcast, sponsored by Tenem Launch. I'm your host, Bobby Bedochka, and today joining me is CEO and co-founder of Mentorly, Ashley Werhan. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours, so thank you so much for being here. So, the usual starting point, tell us a bit about Mentorly, why you started it, and a bit about your background. Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to do some outward facing communication in the year of year three of the pandemic, I guess we're in. Um, so like you said, I'm the CEO of Mentorly. Um, we started Mentorly when I actually had a background as a professional artist. I was a professional ballerina and myself and my co-founder saw this huge gap in the creative market that the people that were actually professionals out there doing and excelling were not the people mentoring and guiding folks that needed it. And so that was the really the origin story of Mentorly. It was a huge pain point in both of our lives. Um, I was a professional artist on tour. Some of the most meaningful interactions I had were, you know, post-show, post-workshop with the next generation. Um, and so we started mentally around that idea of how can we make mentorship easier for everyone to um, access. And so we'll talk about it a little bit later. That's how we started. We ended up as a B2B business today. Um, but I think that journey from launch to where we are today um, is one that's quite interesting. So I have a, a non-traditional uh, path to tech, but I think that has led um, some interesting choices in the company and, um, and definitely, hopefully, a path that others can see when they're kind of outside, outsiders of the industry to get into it. Well, you're definitely the only ballerina that I know who has uh, started a tech company. So I'm sure it, it keeps you on your toes, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've heard you've recently pivoted. Um, so what did that all involve and what advice could you give uh, to other startups in terms of like identifying, um, do we need a pivot? Is it required? And how do I how do I get that rocking? Yeah, so we had a major pivot that we launched in the summer of 2020. So today, Mentorly is a SaaS company, and we sell into large organizations, whether that's kind of a more HR use case or whether that's a large network. Um, and in both of those cases, people need access to mentorship and they're not getting it. That's where we ended up. The path to get there was obviously figuring out what the best distribution for our product and for mentorship was. So like I mentioned, when we launched as a marketplace, we were really going after a B2C customer, right? They were purchasing guidance, they were having this experience, and then we have to replicate that. Um, what we found was that our first customer that ever kind of suggested the pivot to us was MIT. Uh, we were talking to them about their creative entrepreneurs. They loved what we were doing, but they said to us, we love what you're doing, but we do not need the mentor base. We don't need that other end of the market. We have our own people. And so we quickly, almost in a month, ship them a product that was a version of our marketplace, but closed off only for their people. And right away, we started to see the organization itself just use our tech to create these um, connections between their people. They're able to see the engagement, satisfaction, everything around that experience. And prior to that, 
they had no idea what was going on. They kind of did some email intros and said, I hope you get mentorship, right? Unlike most organizations today, they send a survey after six months and after 12 months, but they don't have a system to measure it and improve it as they go. And so that was like the first taste of the pivot. And it came really soon after our product launch. So you can imagine launching a product and then maybe six months after thinking, was this the right thing? Should we be going after a different market? And so almost right away in that in that year of kind of discovery, we started to talk about organizations, about what they need, what this could look like to them. Even though we didn't have the product itself, we started to understand that there was this program manager experience that was the most broken part of the mentorship experience. Because if they couldn't do their job well, their people would never get mentorship. They would never feel supported, right? And so we started to build a product around the program manager experience. This journey was quite interesting because we started to sell things that we hadn't built yet, right? So we said, well, we'll give you insights around how people are engaging. And so mentally, we would you know, send surveys and, and create this beautiful report and send it their way. And they really liked that. And so that was a product proof that we actually should build reporting internally, right? We got satisfaction and kind of qualitative and quantitative ourselves. And then since they liked that so much and paid for it, then we built it. So right kind of in the lean startup mindset, we did do MVPs of every single piece of the product and we integrated it. But then it became a, a moment in the company where we started to see most of our revenue come from this revenue stream. And we said, it's time to pivot. That also coincided with the pandemic, right? A shift to digital work. We'd been the first company to do video mentorship. So this idea around a, a video session being the cornerstone of your mentorship relationship, people finally knew how to adopt that. And so in the summer, we decided, okay, we're going to you know, raise some capital and we're going to announce officially our pivot to be an organizational software company. Um, so it was a journey and, and I wish we saw this light to say, oh, that's our new market. We're just going to pivot. But we did a lot of research and discovery with customers prior just to make sure that that was the right thing. So now over 95% of our revenue uh, comes from this product that we decided to pivot to. Okay, brilliant. So I think the the takeaway there is do some homework, ask around. It the customer discovery and sort of the product to market fit part of the process seems to be what really trips people up in the beginning the most from hmm. from what I can tell. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the goal is to really understand if this is um attainable over a long period of time, not just see oh, this market may need our product and then do a pivot. I think startups underestimate how, how many resources it takes to do a full pivot from brand to communication to product. You want to make sure before you do a full pivot is that this is actually something that is sticky and then it's going to be kind of the right thing. I couldn't see our company pivoting you know, five times to get there, but we did do a lot of research. And then when we finally decided it would happen, then we did kind of our... We took like a bold stance. Yeah. I mean, I think mentorship is really, really critical. And, and when I give a lot of talks and things like that, the question always comes up, how important is mentorship? And, you know, everybody, people identify that it's really important. But then I get the next question, well, how do I, how do I get those? And, you know, the people who really need them are just scared to just reach out directly. You don't get responses. So it's really great you have this nice framework um, that can facilitate that. So then maybe talk to us a bit about, you mentioned 
B2B SaaS. So talk to us a bit about how that's different from B2C other than, you know, business client um, or other business models and why, like, knowing all that difference matters. Yeah, so every piece of it is different from when the money hits your bank account to customer success, right? It's to the product that you make. I think one of the things that set us apart is actually our journey from B2C to B2B because when you tend to build a B2C product, you really focus on the end user and their experience. So usability, that it's beautiful, that it's intuitive. Whereas B2B SaaS companies have sort of this reputation of being a little bit not as beautiful, I'll describe it as, right? Because it's just internal. And so because we started there, I think right away our product um, stood out to people as something that they want to use and want to engage in. Um, from a business model perspective, you have to be just aware that you know someone can sign up to have a reoccurring payment on your you know um, on your subscription, and you have to be really mindful of what pricing looks like. Um, a lot of B two B SaaS companies price per seat. That wasn't the right model for us. We thought to ourselves, do we want our customer building this mentorship program and saying, all right, I have a budget for ninety seats but then 10 more mentors are raising their hand to say, hey, I would love to join. And they're stressing about that cost. Is that reaching our mission of providing more mentorship or is that kind of counterintuitive? So we decided to do bucket pricing, which is you know up to 100 seats, up to 500, up to 1,000, up to you know 2,000, so that when people are looking at their subscription and the value that we're bringing them, it's in alignment with like our end mission of, of bringing mentorship to the world. So that's one piece you have to consider is how you're pricing um, and then how that affects, um, you know, your quarter and your year end that you sign a big client two months before year end. You don't have, you don't see any of that revenue. You see, you know, 10% before year end. So that's something to consider. And then the biggest thing that we're investing a lot in and a lot of, of resources is customer success. Um, when you ship a B2B product, you hope that everyone figures it out and uses it. But the reality is that most customers are only going to use 20 to 30% right away and they're still going to feel value. And then your job is to really get in touch with them to say, you know, most of our customers use these five feature sets and they get this outcome. We see that you're only using two of these features. Can we help you understand how to use these other features? Right. And so that's a big part of what we do is we give them the product. We have a very, um, nuanced and like well thought out onboarding for the client, but then also checking in with them every quarter, every month to understand, are they using the product, you know, as well as they can. And then you really discover like if they're not using specific features, maybe that wasn't the right feature to build, or maybe they need a better integration to use it. So I've fallen in love with B2B SaaS. It's such a stable, high margin, <laughs> nice business to build. Um, but there's so many layers in, in making people successful. Yeah, high margins. That's what <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> That's the, the keywords there. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of hype right now about this great resignation. Um, and I mean, I can say for certain that recruitment right now is tough. Um, and I just hear this across the board. So how did you manage to grow your team in these conditions? Yeah, it's pretty dire <laughs> out there. Like there's like 4 million people resigned last month in America. Like that's not a small number. Um, I think there's kind of an awareness that we're fighting for our people every day to make them be more bought into the mission, to make sure that 
they know where their career is going here to make sure that we're all working to something together. Um, I think that the most interesting thing though, is the shift towards purpose. Like a lot of people, sure, the, the market's crazy. So they're going to be getting offers that are really high, right? Just in a numerical, like full comp scenario. But if you look at Gen Z, even millennials, which I am, people are shifting towards careers of purpose or roles where they think they have impact. And so knowing that companies can either like live or die, you can either make sure that people are well supported. And if you're just treating them as an everyday, you know, hire that they can onboard and just succeed on their own, you're going to lose them um, because it's so competitive out there. Um, so those are like the things that we consider. Also, we consider them because it really affects the market we're selling into, right? Like out of the great resignation or reshuffling, we know that like 40% of people left because of burnout, which means our company mismanaged a digital work environment because people were working way more than they actually would. 16% left because they were not supported by their company. 20% left because they didn't have um, benefits, like the right benefits for them. So even when we're selling into those companies, we know that those are the, the gaps that they're trying to fill and trying to think, how can we show our people that we do care about them? For us, um, I think as like an early stage company, you know that you're never going to be, you know, Shopify out on comp. You're not going to be able to give like a light speed package. So you have to be really good at telling the story of what we're building together and get people excited about the contribution they're going to make. Um, I think the thing that my team is most excited about is the direct impact they have on the product. So because we're a small team, you know, they can build an entire feature set, work with one other person for product marketing, and then they see it out there live. That's not the experience you would have in a big company, right? Like as a junior developer, you're just shipping code to be checked and then some of your projects are thrown out. So I think the ability to build something and ship it and see it and, and then decide if it's successful or not and evaluate that all in your own control is, is interesting. And, it, and we have to give a lot of trust to them to do that because we also don't have any other options, right? We don't have more people. So I think that's, that's the feedback we've gotten mostly is that they have a direct link to the output of the company. And so the, the company's success is their success in a sense. Gotcha. And so you threw out a, a couple of stats. Is there um, particular blogs or websites um, or news organizations that you gather that from? Yeah, we look across the board. Um, uh, Gannett, Garner, um, different articles just coming up out of the New York Times. I think because the great resignation reshuffle, how they, they really branded it and they're really dig digging into it in the press. And so more people are looking at this than ever. Um, so I think part of my job, it's funny because as a founder, a lot of people say you just need to be heads down. But if I'm not really aware of what's going on with the talent market, there's no way we're going to be on the right path. So a lot of my weekends are spent kind of digging into some of those news you know, resources and understanding kind of what's going on um, in the talent market, because that's the market we're, we're you know, going into. Um, and then also for investment, when you're forward thinking to investors and saying, this is what I believe is going to happen in the next five years, based on what has happened, um, you have to be kind of well informed by those things. Yeah. Okay, so everybody do your homework. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
no rest. Um, so now let's talk about the F word, fundraising. Um, this one is, it's my most favorite topic, um, mostly because there's so much involved and lots to learn. Um, so you are predominantly angel invested. Um, so why did you choose that route? What's the process of getting some angels like with structure, identifying, communicating, convincing and closing those folks. Um, yeah, that's, please talk to us about that. Fundraising. <laughs> it's the fun of fundraising. It's so much fun. I actually <laughs> fell in love with my last raise. The first raise was really hard. We did a little pool of angels to build our MVP of the, the new product, the B2B product. And then we we did another round of angel to start to bring that to market. So we are really mindful of when we raised and what the outcome we wanted from each of those things, right? Um, so for angels, I think you have to be aware of a few things. It's their hard-earned money. A lot of them is their personal money. And so you have to connect with A, just who they are before you go into your pitch. No angel investor has ever gotten like a pitch from me. It's always been a conversation but you have to understand what's motivating them and where they can see themselves within your investor base. Um, because if there's no connection there, if I can't learn from them, if they can't contribute to the investor conversation, they're not going to want to be involved. It's almost like they're joining your team at a really early stage. And that's some of the allure of getting in there early is that, you know, you can have high touch points with the founder and you can be, be part of these, you know, rooms that maybe only have 10 people in them and so that's, that was interesting just to get to know every angel investor, um, but accessing them is a different thing, right? So there are these angel networks and we don't, we haven't worked with any of them. So we didn't go through, you know, Maple Leaf or Anshkebeck or anything like that. I really sought out individual angel investors. Um, some of them came through referrals. So of our current first angel investors, they said, you know, my friend in California that has this. XYZ background, I think would be really interested in this. I'm going to refer you to them. So that's already a proof point to that next angel that's maybe higher up in the tech ecosystem that they're coming into our defunded company. Um, some were cold outreach. I have, we had the early um, product manager from Slack, Sean Rose, um, come in from a cold email, right? And, and his website was kind of obtuse and it just had like a hello at Sean Rose or something. And I just emailed him and, and he emailed back and we ended up having this incredible mentor for our, our own product manager. Um, and then others were referrals. Like that's kind of what you hear in fundraising is this warm intro type of rule that can be really limiting for people who are not connected, um, but you can make them happen in a really structured way. So oftentimes when founders email me to intro to investors, they say, hey, could you, you, know, could you intro me? which is a really kind of naive way to ask for an intro. The more seasoned founders will say, hey, could you intro me to these three people? I see you're connected. Do you feel comfortable? Here's my one paragraph. Here's my deck. Here's what I'm asking for. Here's the best way to intro. And so you make it as seamless as possible. So when I'm asking other people for an intro, I just literally want them to just hit forward and they can say, hey, check this out. So make it really seamless for them because you don't want them to do any work for you. Um, in terms of thinking like who you're approaching, I kind of took our own advice. And so when we think about mentorship, oftentimes we think about this umbrella, or sometimes I call it like a parachute of mentors to catch you as you fall. And 
in the parachute of Mentorly, we have these different parts of the company. So, you know, sales and growth and product and development. And I, I kind of thought, what if I could get someone for each of those departments as a sounding board? Not that that department head's going to talk directly to the investor, but we can bring some major questions up to, to ask and get their guidance. So because of that, I wanted someone that was using a product or they could be using our product in their role. So we um, approached Backbone Angels. Uh, Brittany Forsyth um, was the chief of talent at Shopify. For a, she was there for 11 years and she had just left. And I thought like, what better person to say, I would use this or I wouldn't use this. Even if she said I wouldn't use this, that would be valuable. Mm-hmm. And then this is how people in HR or your end buyer is going to think. She'd also seen you know, Shopify grow from a few dozen people to thousands. So that would be helpful. So that was, you know, in the go-to-market piece. I really wanted my CTO, Matteo Murphy, to have a, a mentor. And so we got the CTO of Reddit, right? Like what what, other, what better mentor could you have? And I had met him a few years ago in San Francisco at a conference. Um, and so those are kind of some of the people I approached along the way to see if they would be interested to be involved but getting to them is kind of a winding journey um, for each founder. The classic advice of having momentum in your round really helped. So each time I reached back out to them, the opportunity would get smaller, right? So it said, hey, we're raising 500,000. Would you be interested? The next week it would say, hey, this current opportunity is now 300,000. Hey, this new current opportunity is only 150. Would you like to come in? And it, it gives them a little bit of pressure to say, to even just make a decision, whether that's yes or no, because yeah. they know that you're on, you're on a, you're on a moving train with or without them. And so if they'd like to come on, please come on. And if they wouldn't, please also tell me to kind of not waste the founder's time. So um, is that your close strategy generally, or there's, there's another step, like once you got one-on-one and like, how do you, how do you close? So there are different I guess, negotiation strategies that I've learned over the year to close, whether that's investor or sales or anything like that. Um, A lot of the times asking what's missing, is there anything lacking for you to make a decision is a helpful sentence because they'll say, oh, we need to do this due diligence or no, I just need to sit on it for a few days. You know, after they say three days, great. I immediately in my schedule say, check up with so-and-so this day, right? So that you're never waiting on their process and momentum. You're doing it in your process. Um, and then it's a combination of things to close. Um, we did a rolling close, meaning people, when they made a decision, they you know signed the safe and they gave us the money. And so um, I wasn't pushing towards this one date to close everything up. So I had to kind of motivate each individual investor along the way to close as fast as possible. Um, you can leverage your end of fundraising date to say, hey, I will only be fundraising till the end of May. Um, if you would like in, please give me a heads up. Um, so you can kind of share a little bit about your process. You can say, hey, I have three other investors coming in this Friday. I'd love to get this legal done together. Um, are you still interested? Right. And and it's, it's an overtly confident way to approach it. Um, because if you're not that confident in the outcome or scared to hear a no, you're going to just avoid it and almost self, self-sabotage self yourself to think, oh, they're still interested. Maybe there's still a chance, but it's more helpful just to know where they stand and to get them to make a decision. So I think being intellectually honest with that conversation and how it went um, is like the best thing to, to be 
and then understand if it's a yes or no, or maybe, and then what you can get it to be a yes. And if it's a no, like move on quickly, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 No time to mess around. Um, what about, talk to me about this idea of social capital. Yeah. I, well, I think coming from outside the tech environment, I didn't have any. So <laughs> I didn't have any like, you know, past tech company to say, hey, she would be a great founder because she built this at this company. Um, I did have a background in development. So in my professional ballet career, I often worked with our donor base and our board to increase investments. And I was kind of a, a development director there. Um, but it's just giving them um, guidelines to trust you. So one of the ways to do this is just to provide value to them, <laughs> like before asking. So for example, like I'm moderating a talk for a really large company I would love to work with one day this week, uh, not asking for anything, but hopefully that will show you that in the process up to moderating the email exchanges, the meetings we had, the organizational kind of accountability will teach them that I'm a good person to work with. So always providing value. And I do this with our customers too. Um, hey, we have this press opportunity in the Washington Post. I called all of our clients in Washington and said, we would love to feature you. You know, you don't always want to be reaching out with an ask. You want to be reaching out with a give. So trying to do that. Um, and then being vulnerable and honest with your current experience and wins. So um, with our investor base, I'll be very honest about you know, our growth rate month over month. And I'll, I'll scream that from the rooftops, but I'll also be honest with what I really need help with. And so they can see that in my vulnerability, they can actually provide help because if I was only to report wins, they don't really know if they can trust that I would tell them what's wrong when it's going wrong. So yep. that takes a lot of trust because I think founders often feel like they're just performing, but the more experienced or the longer your company's around, the more important it is just to have that two-way communication. Um, and I think concise storytelling is really important. So, um, you know, in search of our angel investors, I was intro introduced to someone who had this list of hundreds of people that he emails like the hottest deals every month to. So we had a 20 minute conversation. And in that conversation, he was basically trying to say, is Ashley worth someone to refer? And so I had to be very clear in what I was building, why I was building it, why we were going to succeed and I, why he should refer me. And you have to keep in mind that like his reputation is on the line always. When someone's referring them, their reputation's on the line. So you want to be <laughs> as successful as possible, even in that exchange. So that whether that's returning emails or giving them a good bio or whatever that may be, um, Make sure that's positive because they put their neck on the line for you. And so just to dive into that example, he introed us to this pool. We ended up, you know, closing 150,000 out of it. We still have investors that are interested based on that email. When we did, I definitely reported back, hey, thank you so much for referring us. This is all the success that that you, you know, your intro did for us. And then send them a Christmas card and then send them like a hey, how are you doing? I know Omicron is crazy. I hope you and your family are okay. Like keeping them engaged with your success because they helped you get there, I think always pays off. And, and that's what people deserve. Like they deserve a lot of gratitude because <laughs> yeah. there's nothing saying that they have to do that for you. It's all out of the kindness of their heart. So yeah, it, this is like, I mean, it's like relationship building 101, but you, it just goes on, 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 
people just don't do it enough. Um, yeah. And it's very, very important. It's kind of like what, you know, especially with the narrative, if someone, if we have, you know, if you pitch me and then I, if I can't go home to the dinner table and very easily without your deck, explain what you're doing, then, you know, you, you haven't done your job well, right? So it needs to be really, really easy to transmit. Um, and then, you know, you've got something. Uh, last point on the whole fundraising um, uh, topic. Uh, as a female founder and someone who was fundraising um, in in a world where the stats are pretty low uh, for female founded uh, or invested investment in female founded companies, um, what has been your experience and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess just to give like the audience an idea, this year it was the lowest in the last I think since 2016. It was two percent <clears throat> going to entirely female founded companies and 15% going towards folks that had a male co-founder. So just to distinguish that it's not so bad if you have a man on the, you know, on the call. Um, I'm going to be like pretty candid with this. Like I, I don't care. <laughs> like I, I get sent those articles all the time. Um, people say, Oh, it must be so hard. Um, but I don't have time to think about that. And I don't, I'm so sorry that the world is still there, but like I still need to fundraise um, and make more revenue for the company. And so anytime I feel my brain going there, I know it's not going to be helpful. Like if I go, I think I can do the work to say, oh, I'm going to intro more female founded companies because to be frank, I've built a lot of really good relationships with investors and I almost only send them female founded companies because those are my friends and those are the people that I know building. Um, so I know that it's definitely out there. The opportunity is there. There's a lot of bias. There's more bias. I'm a white female, so I'm getting a lot of the 2%. There's way more at stake here for minority founders and, and women of color. Um, but every time I feel my brain going there, it's super counterproductive. And I end up just like, Oh, this is so hard. So it's going to be hard anyways, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I wish, I wish I had a better answer there, but I, I don't really have time um, to like follow all of those stats. The, the one stat I was really surprised by is, is SaaS founders. Like only 1% of any transaction done with a SaaS company, a female founded that company. So that's really curious, right? Is SaaS is my favorite business model now. It's so high margin. Any females listening, like SaaS is where you should be. Um, so yeah, but they, but it they is... also don't match the those stats with numbers. Like out of one thousand female-led startups, compared to a hundred thousand male-led. Do you know what I mean? And so right. sort of there's a there's a lack of context there. But I mean, I I'm with you in the sense of. If you, you only have so much energy in your body and focus on your day. And so if you let that get to you and it's going to suck up your energy when you should be spending it on, you know, other things, um, I think being aware of it and the fact that you're just introing um, uh, women as best you can. I mean, that's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. hopefully one day as 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 the pipeline gets stronger with more um uh, skilled females in tech, then hopefully that one day will change. Yeah. And we know, we know the outcomes, right? Like having a diverse founding team gets better outcomes, having a diverse board. So like, I don't think we need to do, I mean, I think we need to keep talking about it to bring it to the top and, and people need to keep covering it. Um, there needs to be less takedown articles about 
female CEOs though, you know, like there, there is clearly a double standard that even when females do succeed, that it's, it's, uh, they're kind of judged a little bit harsher. So I think bringing up is important for like media folks listening and, and definitely investors to keep investing in, in companies that you believe in. Um, but for founders, like I would rather see us win, like my solution, I have a really good friend who's a Quebec founder and we just, you know, dream about the day that we're investing and we're running our own accelerator and we're, you know, like getting the outcome. I think that will change it the most is just like, well, let's go ahead and build a unicorn and then we can have a, an opinion on this. And until then we're just going to keep building. Yes. Let us go ahead and build a unicorn. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, so this is your opportunity to share with the world. What are you looking for? Are you asking for anything from our community? And how can people get in touch with you? That's really kind of you. Thank you. Um, we're always looking for more customers and clients. So Mentorly is an end-to-end software solution for your mentorship needs. So most companies right now run mentorship on a spreadsheet. Some of the biggest tech companies we work with in the world still are on a spreadsheet. And so when we chat with them, they say, oh, I'm so embarrassed. This is on Excel. And we say, that's where everyone is. Like, don't worry. This is why we're working together. Um, but we help you create a branded experience where people are welcomed. We collect their data. We help do smart matching and accountability with reviews and, and all kinds of information that you can make better decisions about your learning program. So whether you're running a large organization, you know, over 200 employees, um, that should be part of their onboarding when they're welcome to your company, they should say, here's your healthcare, here's your mental health care, here's your mentorship login. It should be part of people's onboarding and it will help retain talent. Um, or you're running a large network. So our clients are, you know, Startup Canada, BPTN, South by Southwest, a large network of people. Oftentimes the reason they're coming to your network is to get mentorship and networking. And so we can help you provide a better experience. So that's my number one ask is anyone that's interested or knows someone in the talent space or the community space and they want to get better at it um, is to reach out to me. And you can reach out to me at ashley at mentorly.co or on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Any inbound sales is so appreciated. Um, And we'll be opening up our next round of fundraising um, in the next 30 days. So if there's investors uh, listening, if you're Canadian, I probably already have a meeting uh, planned with you on the books. Um, But we're we're really looking to, to talk to investors in North America because there's such an expansion right now of new funds and new fund managers. And we're trying to find the ones that fit best with, with our growth and our team. Um, so those are the two areas of expansion. Beautiful. Great. Well, thank you, um, Ashley, for joining us on the podcast. And thank you to our loyal listeners. Your time is always appreciated. You can follow Tatum Launch on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget, if you have a technical background, a master's PhD in technical fields, and want to create your own startup, hit me up on LinkedIn, and I can tell you about all the incredible opportunities at Tandem Lunch. Ciao for now. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. If you like what you see and hear, hit the subscribe button, leave us a comment, share the podcast, and follow us on social media.